Well, good morning. You can uh, be opening your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 10. Uh, before we uh, get into God's Word this morning, uh, we, of course, uh, are, are part of a global fellowship. And, uh, you know, our church here in Birmingham uh, certainly reflects that. Uh, to some degree, many people here who are part of our church became Christians in other parts of the world, including me, obviously. My accent's a little different. Um, uh, recently, uh, the Ukraine has been going through a lot of strife uh, with Russia, and uh, it has severely affected quite a few of the churches in the Ukraine, and specifically the church in Donetsk. Um, and uh, brought to my attention to our, our Moldovan brother and sister who moved here, uh, Sasha and Tanya, uh, that they are fasting and praying. Uh, for peace in the Ukraine and for God to really work through this uh, very challenging situation uh, within the within the church, uh, especially in Kiev, but all these small churches as well. Uh, you have brothers and sisters who have very strong history and, and loyal ties to Russia or the Ukraine, yet they're in the same church together, and these two countries are, are at war. And the war is not as much in the media at this point, but it's still going on, uh, and it's severely uh, dwindled. Uh, really, the church in Donetsk uh, down to nothing uh, just because of the strife and the civil war there, and so. Uh, they asked uh, churches in the, in the region and in Europe and beyond to, to pray and fast uh, for peace there. And so uh, uh, I got word of this through, through Sasha and Tanya, and I said, well, we'll set that up for the 8th of April. Uh, we put it in the newsletter, announced it. I, I know some of us probably uh, maybe can make a decision to fast later if we, if we, if we had forgotten about it. Uh, but today we want to spend some time in prayer uh, for peace there in the Ukraine. Uh, and if you're not fasting, you certainly can fast uh, the rest of the day or another day. Uh, for peace there for our brothers and sisters and for God to really work for the church. And the church, of course, is in a great position in these moments uh, to show humanity what, what, what things are really about. It's not about a country. It's not about a culture. Uh, it's about knowing Christ. Uh, and so I'll ask Sasha to come up at this time. He's going to pray for us in Russian, uh, and then I'll pray uh, all of him, certainly not in Russian, but English. <laughs> Можем молиться об этом тебе за церкви в Донецке, за братьев и сестер, которые пострадали там. Я о чем благодарен, что ты слышишь наши молитвы, потому что ты сказал, когда двое и трое будут просить тебя о чем-то, ты среди нас. Мы очень просим о том, чтобы ты принес мир туда, Господь, и успокоил твою Господь. Молю о том, чтобы она стала делом политиков, Господь, а не орудий Господь. Amen. Father in heaven, we know your son came in the time in a time where there was there was turmoil, God, uh, amongst governments, amongst nations, um, and we know God in the UK right now. We don't we don't feel that uh, we're not going through that, but we know our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine uh, definitely are God, and so we do pray, God, that you can uh, you can work uh, just just like uh, the way you work through your son, God, in the time that he came to this earth, and we know that. Uh, through Jesus, God, uh, political uh, evil can be overcome, God. Uh, hurts and, 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 and past bitterness and, and feuds, God, can be settled. We know, God, that he, he's the, the son of peace. And we pray, God, for uh, the churches in the Ukraine, God, that uh, Jesus' peace can rest upon them. Uh, that within them, God, that there can be great peace between the brothers and sisters. And we pray, God, uh, for the governments, God, uh, to make peace. And we pray for the rulers there, God, as the Bible tells us to. Uh, to find peace, God, for the common good. But we ultimately pray, God, that the gospel will shine, uh, that the gospel will be a light, God, uh, through their strife and through their tension, and that you can use uh, the fasts and the prayers of the brothers and sisters around the world, God, uh, to bring progress there uh, in that country. God, we love you, we thank you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, we uh, as a church... Uh, 
just wrapped up a campaign on renewal. We had a whole month focused on renewal, and hopefully uh, you, are, you are feeling spiritually like the spring uh, after that time. Spiritually things are starting perhaps to germinate. Uh, spiritually maybe things are starting to bud. Spiritually maybe things are starting to bloom. Hopefully that's how you feel in your heart. And if you don't feel that way in your heart, uh, you know, keep fighting for that. God wants us all to have renewal on a regular basis in our lives and in the church. Amen. We're going to get back into the Gospel of Luke. It's been a little while. It's really the end of last year uh, that we studied this Gospel together. We, uh, we, we, we're going to take some breaks, but we're going to continue to study through the Gospel of Luke as a church. So we're back in Luke chapter 10 uh, this morning. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, uh, with the title of Who is My Neighbor? Just a little bit of context again, just to make sure we're up to speed. And if you're visiting with us, you can get a little bit more of the context if you haven't heard the previous sermons. Uh, but remember, uh, in the first uh, nine chapters, Jesus has mostly uh, centered his ministry in Galilee, uh, the area he was from. Uh, but in chapter 9, verse 51, it says he resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. And so Jesus now is honing in, and so the, the narrative really shifts. The gospel really shifts to the idea of why Jesus came. He came to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And of course, last Sunday we celebrated the end of that story, the resurrection uh, of, of, of Christ. Uh, and nonetheless, so we're in the middle of, the, of, of that, intense, that intense shift uh, in, in the gospel of Luke. And in chapter 10, he sends his disciples out to prepare for their upcoming mission once he completes his. Because we know that his mission now lives on through the church. And so he starts out with calling out the 72. And we looked at that last time and talked about the idea of a plentiful harvest. Uh, last time we were in the Gospel of Luke together. And so it is with this great, uh, this, this great good news meeting where Jesus you know, uh, speaks of, of seeing Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And the disciples are rejoicing that even the demons submit. Even the demons submit in your name, Jesus. Uh, and then he goes on to say in verse 21, at that time, Jesus, Luke records, full, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, in Luke 10, verse 21, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you are pleased to do. Verse 22, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Verse 23, then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And so Luke ends this section. And we're going to shift to the next section here in a moment. You know, you know with Jesus declaring the glory of the moment. And how his ministry really is the consummation of all history. You know, it's a really epic statement that Jesus makes here to his disciples. And he reminds them how blessed they are to be able to see what they are seeing. As they see God incarnate now resolutely heading toward Jerusalem to save the world. And so that's kind of the, the, the context of what we were looking at. But then Luke, Luke shifts to another scene, another occasion. In verse 25, he goes on to say, on one occasion... This is later on, as he now is marching toward Jerusalem. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Good luck with that. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, what is written in the law? Jesus replies, how do you read it? Verse 27, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. 
and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, Luke notes. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, verse 30, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Verse 32, So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Jesus asked, of course. In verse 37, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is one of the more famous parables uh, of Jesus, the parable of the Good Samaritan, we call it, of course, today. Uh, and so it's an interesting uh, you know, dialogue that it starts out with between this expert in the law, or what we might call today a lawyer. An expert in the law at that time was, was, was a, typically a man uh, who, who, who would be consulted on any kind of questions that the Jews might have from the Old Testament. And specifically as referred to the law in that day. He was an expert. He, he knew his Bible forward and backward and he knew how to interpret it and he knew how to apply it to people's lives. And so this guy, he feels pretty learned, but he, he wants to learn from Jesus. And so he asks him a very, very important question. What must I do, in verse 25, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus uh, answers his question by asking him a question, right? What is written in the law? Verse 26, how do you read it? That's always a great place to start when we have questions with each other. Well, what does the Bible actually say? Are we opening our Bibles when we're together? Are we opening our Bibles with each other? I think that's a very important practice that should be happening on a regular basis if we are people of God's word. And Jesus calls us to that and reminds us of that as he calls this man to the same thing. And the man answers in verse 27 and he quotes two Old Testament passages. The first is Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second uh, is, of course, Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Today we call those... The greatest commandments, right? Uh, the, you know, the most important commandments from the Old Testament. That's how we summarize it today. And so, you know, Jesus is impressed with the guy's answer. He says, you've answered correctly. You won the, the spiritual pub quiz here in verse 28. And he says, do this and you'll live. But the man, he says, wanted to justify himself. He wanted to feel really good about his interpretation, in other words. And so he asked Jesus, well, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? I mean, how do we really apply this passage today? And what's interesting is at this time, the common view amongst the Jews was your neighbor was a fellow Jew. Anybody outside of that, you didn't have to worry about that. They, they, they looked down upon the Gentiles in this time. They would even, rabbis were even known to say that, you know, the Gentiles exist to, to stoke the fires of hell. I mean, that, that's, that's how, how far the Jews had drifted from their fellow man outside of their own, their own Jewish culture. In Jesus' day. There was a lot of prejudice and a lot of racism. Um, 
And so that was the common view. And so Jesus, knowing the common view, challenges it then by giving this parable uh, about the good Samaritan. And I think it's a great it's a great thing for us to consider this question, who is my neighbor in a city like Birmingham? It's such a diverse place. People ask me, like, what's Birmingham like? You haven't been here. You know, my friends and family around the world. And, and I'm always like, it, it's a city full of flavor. It's a city full of, of, of diversity and, and life. And there, I've never met so many people from so many different places until uh, I moved to Birmingham. And so I love that about this city. And it really is an amazing thing. But it can be a really challenging thing, can it, too? To really, as Christians, love people. And really, as Christians, reach people. So this, this parable to me has a lot of spiritual significance uh, for our church and for our lives in such a city as Birmingham. And so who is our neighbor is a really good question. And what we see Jesus really breaking it down to is it's all really about loving people. It's all really about loving people. And so the parable itself, uh, it, it's pretty simple. Uh, the scene of the parable is the road to Jericho. Uh, this is a map of, of the road. Uh, Jerusalem is all the way over here, up in the middle of kind of a, of, of a steep ascent of mountains. And the road would wind down through the village of Bethany, which we'll talk about in a little bit, all the way down really into the valley here where the Jordan River lies. And that's where the city of Jericho is. And so it's about a 20-mile road. Uh, and back in, in Jesus' day, it was, a, it was a very treacherous and tricky road to, to, to go through. And there were many twists and turns and, and nooks and crags. Uh, and, and, and this is actually a, a modern-day photo of that ancient road. They've built a different road since then because uh, you can see how it would be very hard to get a, a car around that road. Uh, but, but this is an interesting scene for Jesus' parable. Uh, it, it's a 3,600-foot uh, drop in elevation from Jerusalem to Jericho, 3,600 feet um, drop. And so you can imagine you know, this road is, is – Going down, and there's lots of little twists and turns, and so it was also known the road, uh, and it still is as you know, kind of legendarily as the road called the Bloody Way. And the reason it was known as the Bloody Way is because bandits and, and robbers would hide oftentimes in the in the cliffs and the caverns and the little twists and turns, and would often rob people on this road. And so what Jesus says happens in this parable, which is just a made up story to make a point that a man was robbed on this road, was actually very commonplace. And you can even go back to the 1930s, and this road was still called the Bloody Road. There were still lots of problems uh, in, you know, that have been recorded in history of, of people getting robbed on this road. And what's interesting is, is perhaps Jesus actually said this parable on the road. Because if you read on in Luke chapter 10, they show up at the home of Martha and Mary. Matt's going to be preaching that next, next Sunday. Uh, and Bethany is, is along this road, and that, that's the home of Martha and Mary, according to John chapter 11. So Jesus might have spoken this parable while traveling on this actual road. We don't really know, but that's the scene nonetheless. Uh, the characters in the, in, the, in the parable, you know, we have, we have all three here in this picture. Uh, you know, the traveler, first of all, the man beaten so badly that he's left there for dead on the road. Uh, we might say today maybe he wasn't the smartest of guys. If you're going to travel on a notoriously dangerous road, you might want to not travel by yourself. But the man nonetheless has traveled by himself, and he's been uh, you know, robbed and beaten so badly that they lay there half dead. Uh, along comes a priest and a Levite, uh, as the story goes. Uh, these men uh, you know, spiritually would have been from uh, the, the tribe of Levi, and they both would have served in the temple. Uh, the distinction between a priest and a Levite, well, the priest was, was set apart in the most holy of ways to serve in the temple. And the Levite was more of an assistant, more of an assistant uh, to the priest. He didn't get to do quite as many things within the temple 
uh, worship and sacrifice itself. And so religiously, uh, these are committed men. They're committed men uh, to God and his ways. They're, they're like a person today who shows up to every church meeting. You know, they're, they're there. They're, they're there and they're, and they're a part of things. Uh, and so, so the question uh, certainly comes to mind. Why would good religious men on a road pass a man who seems to be in serious need? Who seems to be having a bad day? Why, why, why would my men who, who claim to love God and, and, and probably know the same scriptures the, the actually the law quoted, why would they, in this made-up story, pass up uh, this beaten man? Well, I think there are many things, perhaps, that allow us, we can relate to this, to excuse ourselves when there are needs that arise. You know, I, I think of, you know, you know, some of those, some of those needs, perhaps. Uh, well, maybe these men being, you know, men who serve in the temple, they felt a, a sense of a more important duty to serve in the temple. Uh, what's interesting is, as uh, Numbers uh, 19, uh, verses 11 through 13, it says there, whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. And then it describes how to become clean and the danger, you know, spiritually if you don't. And so perhaps the, the Levite and the priest thought, hey, if I, if I touch this guy and he's dead, I, I might lose my standing. I, don't, I don't, might not be able to serve at the temple uh, in the next week when it's my duty. And, and so therefore my duty to God is more important than dealing with this man who is perhaps dead. Because this will make me unclean. You know, maybe it was that. Maybe, maybe it was fear. Uh, the, the bandits and, and robbers were also known to, to put someone out who pretended like they'd been attacked and beaten. You know, as, as, as bait, to then get the person to stop, and then they would attack that person. So maybe they were just afraid. And who of us hasn't come across this tricky situation where people are in need, but we feel a little bit in danger ourselves, right? We can understand that. Maybe they were just too busy. You know, maybe it was uh, what I think religious people uh, can be good at, compassion from a distance. You're in our thoughts and prayers. You know, that quick little you know text message we send to people who are really in need. Saying, hey, let me know if you need anything. We don't really want to go do anything, but we kind of feel like we should say something, so we say something. We can maybe relate to that. Maybe they were just indifferent. Hard heart. Well, what kind of a fool goes down this road by himself? What was he thinking? He, he, got, he got what he deserved. That's a little bit uglier, isn't it? And I think, again, I can relate to that. You know, I, I, have, I have a few neighbors, literally people who live beside me. Who, who multiple times have acted like they don't see me. I met them, you know, and I've gone on to meet them, and I've tried to be really neighborly and friendly, and, but now it's like they act like they don't see me. And it's just very weird, and I don't really know what to do with that. And, but I think what I've done is i pull back. Okay, well, you, don't, you want to act like I don't exist, and you know, I'm going to kind of start acting the same to my shame. And so obviously this is a made-up story. It's a parable, so we don't need to over-examine why the priest and Levite didn't stop. But the reason I'm doing this is because I believe it's very illuminating. Because this is a group of religious people. Whether you call yourself that or not, you attend church regularly, you are a religious person. I don't mean that in a negative way. And religious people tend to have acceptable sins in their lives. Oh yeah, we're not doing this, we're not doing that. But can we relate to the priest and the Levite? I think we can. Can you see some of this in your own heart? In your own life? I, I bet you could. Specifically, I think it challenges the acceptable sins amongst God's people of selfishness. You know, selfishness is one of them. You know, these men, you know, they could have easily thought, you know, well, if I help this man, what will happen to me? And 
really, that's a, that's, that's a selfish thought, isn't it? That's a self-oriented way of thinking. What we often think when people are in need is, is what might happen to them if I don't help them. But it's so easy to make it all about what will happen to me if I help them. So the acceptable sin of selfishness I see here. I think the other acceptable sin I think you know we can see today um, is that of pride. You know, just just the, the, the sin of pride. You know, perhaps you know they were more concerned with 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 right doctrine than the right life. Oh, my doctrine's good, so you know that will cover me. You know, neglecting this this poor man on the road. It's so easy when we think we have the right set of beliefs. To justify not living the right way. Because God will cover that. But we know that the Bible calls us to have a balance of life and doctrine. 1 Timothy 4, uh, verse 16. You know, the Bible challenges selfishness big time. You know, today the challenge is always, you know, are we becoming the me church? Rather than the church of God. 2 Timothy 3 talks about a group of people who have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. In 2 Timothy 3. And actually says, one of the first things it says, it goes through a list of how they are. It says the first thing about them is that they are lovers of themselves. And then at the end it says they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. So selfishness is something that, that can keep God's power out of our lives. You know, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Sorry, I didn't get 1 Timothy 3 up there for you, but you can write that down and look at it later. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, speaking of pride. In verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. In our pride, we can, we can make ourselves way too important. In our pride, we can make ourselves uh, more valuable than we, we, we really are. And in our pride, we can, we can miss on the, out on the most important aspect of our faith, which is love and action. Love being lived out. And these religious men in the parable certainly, certainly, I think, show that heart that, of religious pride that can keep us from really loving people the way we should. And, of course, the stark, stark contrast to these characters is that of the Samaritan. I love that about Jesus. He gives us the solution here uh, to our religious sins. Uh, he took, shows us, you know, the Good Samaritan. Um, you know, the Good Samaritan, uh, you know, there's these four qualities that we see here uh, in the Good Samaritan that really stand out. Um, what's interesting about this parable as well is, was the man actually literally from Samaria? The Samaritans, um, you know, the, 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 the landscape in Jesus' day, you had Judea in the south where Jerusalem is, and that's the area he's in now. But north of that, on the way to Galilee, where Jesus is from, uh, is Samaria. And the Samaritans were looked down upon generally by the, the Orthodox Jews in Jesus' day because the Samaritans, uh, they intermarried with a lot of the surrounding peoples. And so they weren't considered full-blooded Jews anymore at this point. So they were looked down upon by the Orthodox Jews with, a, with a, a better lineage in that regard. But then the Samaritans also started to kind of form their own view on what it meant to be a Jew. And so they actually had a truncated view of the Old Testament. They didn't use all the Old Testament. They just used the first five books, the Pentateuch, uh, mostly. They didn't use the prophets and, 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 and the latter letters. Uh, and then the other thing is they had a rival temple, actually, that they developed at Mount Gerizim. Based on the prejudice and the tension between them and the Orthodox Jews, they no longer went to Jerusalem to worship at the temple because they created their own temple at Mount Gerizim. So there's a lot of bad blood history uh, between the Jews in, this, in Jesus' day and, and, and what is being labeled here as the Samaritans. But what's interesting is Jesus' uh, own critics, they actually say that he's a Samaritan. 
In John chapter 8, verse 48, they say, you're a Samaritan and out of your mind. I, my, my slide got messed up here. That should have been on there. But that's in John 8, uh, verse 48. So, so whether this man literally was a Samaritan or someone that Orthodox Jews would look down on, a derogatory term, you, you Samaritan. Uh, either way, how stinging, how challenging must it have been for, for the Samaritan to be the one to live out what the scriptures, the expert law was quoting as opposed to these two devout Jewish men. So Jesus, he, he, he really drives home this point uh, by using the Samaritan as the character in this parable. And, and yet we see in this, in this uh, parable, in this character of the Samaritan, you know, just really the, the heart of God for humanity. And really the, the heart of God that Jesus showed us, right, in his death, burial, and resurrection. And we see these four qualities of the Samaritan. He was compassionate. Uh, in verse 33 it says he took pity. He took pity on the man. You know, we, we have to be empathetic toward the needs of others to, to want to meet them. We have to feel their pain. And the man, that, 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 that's the, the phrase here, he took pity upon this man. He was moved by that pity then to act. It's so easy, again, to, to be neutral and to be indifferent toward people's needs. Uh, he was considered in verse 34. He comes to him. You know, it says he, he, he anoints his wounds. With wine and oil, and, and, he, and he bandages up the wounds as well. And then he puts, puts them on his own donkey. Now, I'm assuming he was riding his donkey, and now the man's riding on the donkey instead of him. It's compassionate, he's considerate, he's prepared. Verse 35, you know, uh, you know, he, as, as he drops him off at this inn, he took out two denarii, two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. You know, he... Sometimes, sometimes we, we have nothing to give because we've squandered what we have. Our things that don't really matter. And so when moments come up where we can really meet a need, we can really, you know, take care of somebody who's poor or, or, or give more to the church, we, we blow it on all these things that don't really matter. Some of us, maybe that's why we don't give contribution regularly. We could give contribution regularly, but we'd have to actually stop wasting money on things that don't really matter. So we could give our money to God and His church. This man was prepared. He was prepared to meet this man's needs, physically and also financially. And also he was trustworthy. In verse 35, you know, he tells the man, I'm leaving. Whatever expenses, you know, these two denarii don't cover, I'll get, I'll get it to you later. This man had built a reputation with the innkeeper, you know, that, that he could be trusted. And so there's so much there to, to imitate and emulate if we're going to love our neighbors. If we're going to live out this passage, the compassion, the consideration. The preparedness, you know, the trust, the integrity. Uh, and as with most of Jesus' parables, th- there could be multiple meanings to this passage, and, and there is much to learn. Uh, and so just a few ideas here to take away from this time uh, in God's Word this morning. Um, so Jesus gives this great parable, and he, and, he, and he now brings it you know, down to a point in verse 36. Which of these three, he says to the expert in the law, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? I mean, what's the guy going to say, Right? The one who had mercy on him. It's an obvious answer. And so, you know, who, you know, who is our neighbor? The, the, the question is answered by Jesus here, as the expert in law shows the answer. It's anyone we come across in need. According to this parable, it's anyone we come across in need. You know, this parable, uh, it's challenging if you really think about that. Challenging to try to be a good Samaritan. And it's easy just to be religious, like the Levite. 
uh, and the priest. You know, this parable to me shows, you know, who, who gets the greatest commandment. Who really gets the greatest commandments are those who go and do like the Samaritan when they see needs around them. You know, Cosmo Lang put it simply, be in your spirit neighborly. And then every man will be your neighbor. And amen, we can switch that for the sisters. Be in your sister neighborly. And then every woman will be your neighbor. Amen. I want to make that, you know, got to meet all the needs there. I'm sorry about that. Um, and so, so perhaps the better question for us uh, as we look at this text this morning is not who is my neighbor, in line of what we've learned here from the passage, but am I neighborly? And just kind of bringing this practically into our lives. Are we neighborly? Is that the spirit of our of our lives? Is that is that is that the, the heart in everything we do and everywhere we go and every and everything that we see on a day to day basis? Now Jesus he ends his parable pointing the lawyer, lawyer toward what he should do far more than what he should believe. But far more about what he should do. Than just simply what he should believe. You know, often it's not our doctrine and our differences that hold us back as a church to loving our neighbors. I don't believe it's that. It's a lack of a willingness to act when we see needs. Yeah, there are cultural differences. Yeah, there are, there are challenges at work. Yes, there are challenges in our neighborhoods. Yes, there are challenges even within our church. Yes, but those things aren't really the issue. When it all boils down to it, we, if we really love each other and really are neighborly toward each other, we're going to break through those barriers and we're, going to, and we're going to love each other more. And whether or not that invitation is accepted or received back is not even, is not even the point. The point is just to, just to have that kind of heart. And we're reminded here, nearness does not necessarily make us neighborly. Nearness does not necessarily make us neighborly. I'm assuming the man in the parable, it's assumed... Who gets beaten or robbed was a, was a fellow Jew. And so the Levite and the priest who ought to have been naturally neighborly to this fellow Jew are not. And it's the Samaritan who, 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 who perhaps was even scorned by this man before this man fell, fell into the hands of these robbers. It's the one who shows the mercy in the parable. So do we love our neighbors? And I'm not... Yeah, I am talking about people that live to your right and your left and across the street. But obviously we've now broadened this definition. We walk, when we walk up, you know, we walk into this room today and we see needs. Those are our neighbors. When we walk out of here today and we see needs, those are our neighbors. Do we love our neighbors? It might require money. It might require time. It might require just care or concern. It might require respect and understanding. It may, it may require encouragement. It may require just simply a listening ear. But, but is that our heart? We're looking to meet needs any way we can. As Christians, we, we have already seen and experienced this kind of love. We've received it in the gospel. What's interesting is, you know, another interpretation of this parable is this really just displays really what, what God has done through the gospel of Jesus. And I came across this in a great book. I, I, my father-in-law, uh, Mike Fondo, has a, a vast library, and he gave me these two books a while ago. Um, uh, this is all the parables of the Bible, and the other one's all the miracles of the Bible, and it's, it's an old-school book. It's awesome. And, uh, uh, but, but the author of, of this one is, is Lockyer. And he writes about this parable. 
He says, did not God make humanity his neighbor? Seeing a world of sinners robbed of their true nature, stripped of divine ideals, wounded by sins, unable to rise, God came down in the incarnation to where the sinner was and gave the world a corresponding example in act of the merciful Samaritan. Christ, through his death and resurrection, covers our nakedness, binds up our wounds, and heals them with a balm extracted from his own broken heart. Not only so, but he puts us in a place of safety, provides for our needs, and has promised to return and take us to himself. Thus the parable is radiant with the beauty of the gospel of Christ, who in his life and death kept all the injunctions given in this peerless parable. So as Christians, we, we, we've already really received this kind of love and this kind of attention and this kind of care through the gospel of Christ. Because spiritually, we're just like that man on the road. And yet Jesus came, you know, and, 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 he's, and he's provided everything that we need through his glorious gospel. And so as Christians, we of all people, as we reread the parable of the Good Samaritan, as we receive the blessings of the gospel, we ought to be the most eager and the most excited and the most willing to, to share this with others. This idea that God has provided for all that we need, so therefore let me do what I can to provide for others and meet their needs. We should be the most, we should be the most motivated to be like that good Samaritan than anybody. But all of us this morning, we're, we're more like the good Samaritan or we're more like those religious bystanders, the priests and the Levites. All of us are more of one or the other. And I think for me, I've been feeling this a lot this year. Just feeling the sense of, man, there are so many needs. I, I should be doing this. I should be doing that. But, but then but then quickly, you know, not acting sometimes when I see those needs. And I think for, this, for me, this parable is quite convicting. I've got, I got to act. I've got to act every time I feel that as much as I possibly can. But the thing is, you know, we can feel these things, but, but acting is not easy. Being neighborly is not going to be simple. It's not just going to be, you know, this, this, this glorious you know, TV documentary on the way you, you change the lives of orphans in Africa. You know, it, it, we, we, you know we, we, we oftentimes forget how challenging it can be just, just in our everyday lives. And then maybe you're going to go change the lives of orphans in Africa. I think that's a great thing. But let's start here. Let's start the rest of today. Let's start tomorrow. You know, are we going to be neighborly? You know, I'll give you an example from my own life. I was uh, waiting for a brother in Costa. He's running a little late and uh, sitting there and, uh, and, and I'm, you know, in the cost of their university and just, just two meters away from me are these two young, young ladies. I'm assuming they're in school there. And, 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 and I just hear this, this, the girl's back was turning, but I, just, I could tell she was weeping. I mean, she was really weeping. And the other one's trying to console her and I'm like, oh, oh no, you know. And, I, and I'm sitting there and it just, it just keeps going for like minutes on end. And so I, I'm like, I got to do something. Like, this poor girl, she's, it's devastating. So, you know, after two or three minutes of rushing in my head of what I actually should do, because, you know, I don't know what to do. They don't know me. I, you know, I'm a costa, you know. And I just walk up. I'm like, hey, excuse me, you know. I'm getting so awkward. I mean, uh, are you okay? I say, are you not? And their friends are saying, she's fine. She's fine. And the girl kind of, you know, she wipes her tears. Can I do anything for you? No, no, no. We're fine. The girl says she's not fine. We're, we're fine. But thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I said that guy, and she kind of seems to calm down a bit, you know, and I said, okay, oh my God. brother still isn't showing up, you know, and then again, weeping and weeping, I'm sitting there, and I said, again, I just 
what, you know, what, what do I do, you know? And, uh, and, and so, and so, they, and they kind of look over at me at this point, and they, and they see me kind of like, you know, that, so they, they, they start packing up their stuff, you know, so like, then I start to make them feel uncomfortable, because I'm, I'm concerned about her weeping, and they don't know me, I'm this random stranger, and so then I get up like, okay, well, let me tell them I'm a minister, because maybe they won't make it so weird that I'm trying to, trying to look out for them, and so I, I give, I give it the church card, and I was like, yeah, I'm actually a minister in a local church, and, and really, if I could just, if I can help you anyway, just, just let me know. My information's on here. And, and then they walked off. So that was about a 10-minute moment where I saw a need. And it was a 10-minute kind of awkward follow-up I mean, where I didn't really meet the need, but, but I was trying to meet the need, you know. And, uh, and so I can't say after that, that, that situation, I thought, yeah, man, all right. I'm ready for the next situation. You know, I was feeling kind of the opposite. I was like, I don't know how to do this. So I'm trying to be neighborly. I'm not very neighborly, you know. And, uh, and so, so I'm putting it out there to say it's good. It's not going to be simple. It's not going to be easy. It may actually go the opposite of what you want to go. I wish you would have said, oh, thank you so much. I've been searching for God. And this is the answer. This is the answer that I'm, I'm so glad you walked over. Sit down, please. Open the Bible with me and tell me the good news about Jesus. That didn't happen. And I still haven't heard from her, I don't think. But uh, but you understand what I'm saying. But we just we gotta start we gotta start being more neighborly. There are needs around us all the time. There are people weeping in your neighborhood right now. There are people at your workplace who are going through all kinds of heartache and hurt. And there are there are students among you that, that they're, they're empty inside. They're, look, they're looking for hope. They're looking for something more. And they need us to bring that, that care and concern to their lives. But this parable, I think, can really transform us, keep our hearts soft and ready and compassionate and willing when the needs arise. And they compel us to go and do just like the Samaritan did for that man in the story. We've got to be bold in love to be neighborly. We've got to be bold in love. You know, the campaign was great, uh, you know, talking about renewal, and but I think it was also revealing uh, for where I think our church really needs to grow. This is just my personal view, uh, where I think our church really needs to grow and be more neighborly. Uh, you know, a, 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 one of the last Saturdays of the month, we decided to meet outside the, the gates here on Pershore Road and go around and door knock the neighborhoods and invite them out for our Easter Sunday. We announced it, it was on the calendar, we told the whole church, we had about ten members of the church and about five of their kids. When we started that morning at 10 a.m. right here on Pershore Road to, to reach out to our neighborhood. Uh, and then uh, I'm sure some of you had reasons you couldn't be there. I don't doubt that at all. It's a Saturday morning. Life is busy. I get that. Um, but I wonder, I wonder if a lot of us could have been there and maybe should have been there. But, you know, kind of like the Levite and the, and the priest. I, you know, I, I don't know how important it really is. I Kind of, it's kind of uncomfortable for me. I mean, to knock on people's doors. I just, I don't, I don't know if culturally the English are really ready for that. I mean, you know, I, I just, you know, my back was kind of hurting, you know, and I just, the weather, the forecast wasn't looking, you know, fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. And I'm not saying that that's a noble deed that should be done by every person every time we call the church to do it. But I think someone should really be convicted. That we are more like the religious bystander in the parable than, than the Good Samaritan. Because that was just one opportunity to be more like the Good Samaritan. So don't let that opportunity pass you by. Let the Word of God convict you. Let the Word of God motivate you and inspire you to be more like Christ. Because we, we cannot fulfill the Great Commission to make the office of, of this city 
let alone all nations, if we don't live out the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment fuels the great commission. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that was an opportunity for us to love our neighbors, literally, as far as those who you know meet and live around this, this, this building. And if you're visiting with us today, we're glad you're here. Uh, we, we, we want you to feel like you are our neighbors, no matter where you live or where you come from. And please let us know how we can be more neighborly to you. And we'd love to share with you the gospel, because we believe that's really how you come to really understand how to be a neighbor in this world today. In church, we've got to let love roll and rule more and more in our lives. It's got to, 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 to roll. It's got to roll in a daily, practical way. Don't, but, but, but don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. That's going to be the temptation. Don't overthink it. I love the C.S. Lewis quote. He says, do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you are presently come to love him. The story of the Good Samaritan is one of the best known and most beloved of all Jesus' teachings. But the power lies not knowing it, but living it out. Hopefully we've answered the question today, who is my neighbor? Our neighbors are anyone we come across who has a need. Let's go out this week and be neighborly. And as we do this, we can and will change the world because the saving work of the gospel is always connected to love. Let's go out this week and be neighborly. The Reverend Preacher Christ said, Amen. Amen.